Hi, this is Tom Alexander, and this is my Dope History. People don't often wake up knowing that today they are going to make history. Generally, the process is a long arc of an individual who is simply doing what comes natural to them. Tom Alexander didn't start out as a journalist, creating one of the earliest and most influential print magazines specific to cannabis. He started with a passion for the plant. For me, it's like meditation. I mean, I gardening in, in general is like a meditation and it's a peaceful, uh, you basically escape from the everyday craziness and you can like uh, do a, a Zen type thing. And that's what uh, gardening in general is for me. But the cannabis plant is really a magical plant. I I first consumed it in uh, 1969 at a anti-war protest in New Haven, Connecticut, when I was in college. And what's ironic is a year before that, when I was in high school, senior in high school, I was a jock. And, and even in college, I was still a jock. But in high school, I was a real straight jock. And this this kid accused me of uh, of consuming and selling cannabis. And I put him against the wall and I threatened him. And and then a year later, I was in college and these Vietnam vets had just came back from Vietnam. And instead of bringing their belongings, they brought duffel bags of Thai stick and Vietnam stick, uh, high potency cannabis. And I was on the New Haven Green with 20,000 protesters and, and surrounded by uh, military people and, and guns and armored cars and it. And we're getting high with these Vietnam bets. And it was like a trip of being in Vietnam, even though we're on the New Haven Green. And the next day we said, whoa, that was fun. And ever since then, I've been a consumer. And, you know, we never thought about uh, growing it until about six years later when I was on Cape Cod. And I had always been an organic gardener because instead of going to summer camp when I was growing up, my parents would send me to my grandfather and grandmother's five acre farm in upstate New York, where he taught me organic methods and saving seeds. He, he was this Italian that, that came over to this country in the 1920s and, and immediately got a five acre farm and, and worked on the railroad and then worked on the farm after he got done working on the railroad at night. And, so every summer we would go, me and my brothers would go up to uh, upstate New York and work on his farm. And he taught me the organic method of growing plants. And so I always had this background of organic gardening and farming. And, you know, he he had uh, chickens and rabbits and composted everything and, you know, taught me compost from the very beginning and, you know, he wasn't scientific, but he knew how to do it all. I mean, never tested his soil. He never did anything like that. But he grew outrageous plants. And so I always had this organic background. And I've always been organic. And uh, so when I started growing cannabis, I always used organic methods. And, and uh, well, I first grew um, on Cape Cod in 1975. I didn't know anything about male and female plants. I just took some seeds out of a bag of Mexican dirt weed 
and threw it in the ground. And, uh, you know, in September when the males started pollinating, I thought I had hit the jackpot with all this yellow pollen and uh, basically getting a headache. But then uh, about a month later, we got some seeded bud that actually wasn't bad. And then I uh, got Bill Drake's book and uh, uh, studied that, oh, there are male and female plants. And so then the following year on Cape Cod, uh, we grew uh, plants and, and killed the males before they were pollinating. And then I moved to Oregon in, in late 76, and I immediately met up with growers in uh, uh, Roseburg. That, um, they were these Hawaiian growers that bought up five farms in western Oregon, and they had me manage one of them. And uh, they were growing cannabis in Oregon and exporting it to Hawaii because in Hawaii they were looking for the cannabis to be exported to the mainland, not coming into Hawaii. So we grew in, uh, outside Roseburg, Oregon, uh, over 2,500 plants. And, uh, and the following year and got away with it. And following year, I, uh, moved up to Corvallis and struck out on my own and bought a Kubota tractor and, uh, we were on this uh, 160 acre homestead that had uh, old growth trees, both firs and cedar. And uh, I mean, they were huge. They were, you know, several hundred feet tall. They were about five feet, six feet across. And a uh, guy we were renting it from uh, never came on the property. But um, so with the Kubota, we put in over an acre of uh, plants. And I ended up with uh, 1,230 females that um, that the guy who owned the property was always getting uh, uh, solicited by the timber companies to cut down these old growth trees. And so he had this timber cruiser cruise the land and they stumbled upon our one acre plot. This was like in late June and they told the sheriff and they watched us all summer and uh, in late September, about a week away from harvest, they um, busted us and, uh, and they, you know, obviously took us to jail and, and hauled the, the crops in and uh, we spent 25 hours in jail. And at the time I was, uh, also farming like uh, about three and a half acres of veggies. And the next day I was going to go to the farmer's market. And so I pled my uh, farmer's case to the judge and he let us out on our own apartment and uh, went to the farmer's market. And there were other cannabis growers there too, who were also selling veggies. And so they heard my, my sorry state of affairs. And, then about 10 days later, we uh, had another court appearance. And in the meantime, I had determined that the, the legal description of the property, it was way out near Alcy, Oregon, about 20 miles west of Kumalas. And uh, it had a, the wrong dis legal description of the property. 
So I told my uh, attorney, and he didn't believe me, so he took it to the tax assessor, and the tax assessor said, yeah, there's one, uh, there's a Southwest where a Northwest should be in the legal description of the property. So he took it to the judge, and the judge took five minutes and said, case dismissed. Well, since the uh, sheriff didn't need the evidence anymore, these three sheriffs stole the evidence, and they got arrested by the state police because I guess they had been doing it for a while and they were being watched. And there was so much evidence and it was almost ready to harvest buds that the state police arrested these three guys, sheriff deputies, and uh, and charged them with uh, stealing evidence. And so um, I followed their case. It was in Corvallis. Benton County Sheriff's and the DA, they pled no contest. And the district attorney said, your honor, I think they should be given leniency because they uh, suffered enough and they lost their careers. And I suggest three years probation. And so uh, that's what the judge gave him. Well, I was outraged because I was facing 20 years in the slammer and a hundred thousand dollar fine. And so I was going to write a book, but all my grower friends said, no, no, do a ongoing journal. And so I, uh, under the kerosene lantern of our little one room cabin out in the boonies, I did a, uh, really crude 16 page, uh, first issue of sent to me a tip in April of 1980. And I took it and, uh, I think we printed up like 1200 copies and took it down to Humboldt and Mendocino. After being arrested and navigating through the legal process, many people would have folded. However, Tom took the proverbial knob and turned it up to 11 with the creation of Sensimia Tips. In a time that predated cannabis forums, YouTube tutorials, podcasts, and even the internet, Sensimia Tips was an invaluable resource. Through the scant pages of this publication, Sensimia Tips provided the catalyst for many advancements in the cannabis growing community. Word of this resource that was dedicated to cannabis cultivation quickly spread from grower to grower, down the hillside and into the valleys below. New generations of growers learned about emerging techniques like Sea of Green. They learned about lighting advancements, principles of organic farming, and other innovative cultivation practices. Sensimia Tips was worth its weight in gold to the growers lucky enough to get their hands on a copy. There were a couple books, Bill Drake and Ed Rosenthal in the late 70s. There were a couple books and uh but there was high times really didn't do cultivation articles they did more fluff pieces and and they were leaning towards cocaine and and uh acid and mushrooms and um cannabis was sort of a sidelight and so it 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 had the hard cultivation info that that uh, was lacking for people. And then in my, um, publisher's notes, I would get political, but then the articles, the first couple issues, I wrote all the articles and, uh, I basically wrote about the way I grew and organics and, and, uh, photos of my plants and how I pinched them. And, and, and then I also took photos from, friends crops and uh and because i needed continued to need photos i 
I grew another uh, couple of years, but then when it became successful, I had so many grower friends that would let me take photos of their crops. I didn't have to grow anymore. I just concentrated on publishing. I think we printed up like 1,200 copies and took it down to Humboldt and Mendocino, and uh, it literally sold out in in a couple days. And I got into some stores, and then so I, that convinced me that there was a, a market for it. And so I kept doing uh, these crude uh, copies. I mean, it was on newsprint and uh, not really professionally designed, and it was real funky and down home. And so then it just kept getting more popular and more popular, and uh, then uh, growers started writing stories. And it basically took on a life of its own all the way across the country, Canada, and even Europe. I uh, I hooked up with a distributor up in Seattle called Homestead Book Company that their claim to fame was the mushroom kit where they sold the psychedelic mushroom kit. But they also sold uh, drug books and magazines and they basically got it all over the country and that was, I think, 1982. I hooked up with them. So after two years, they took me on. And then I I got a couple more distributors. And then um, when I got on national TV and Donahue and Geraldo and the talk shows of the, of the 80s, um, it just really took off. And I got into bookstores and uh, uh some borders and Barnes and Nobles places. And that's when it really just took off in the, in I was on Donahue in 84 and Nightline in 85 and New York times wrote an article. And so when I got national exposure, it really took off. And, uh, and then I hired a staff and became glossy and color photos and stuff. And the first two years I basically did everything in it looked at you know it was funky and not professional but when i hired a staff and graphic artists and editor and it became a real magazine and we were given high times to run for its money and so we became the real uh growers guide and growers information and you know this is in the mid 84 83 84 85 we're talking organics and mycorrhizal fungi and, and humic acid and, and sea green. I mean, we introduced all these concepts that growers were writing about. And, uh, you know, it, it basically got national exposure and, uh, then it just really took off and it was successful until the late eighties when the, um, DEA, did Operation Green Merchant, which they targeted all the grower supply stores that advertised in Sensimia Tips, and they did a coordinated raid uh, in late September of 1989, and uh, basically put 62 uh, stores and some distributors out of business. And so they, um, you know, killed the revenue of Sensimia Tips and. And I tried for about six months to just do a subscription base, but it didn't work. And so I 
shut down since me at tips in early 1990. Before all this happened, I saw the handwriting on the wall because they created the drug paraphernalia law uh, and they listed HID lights, hydroponics, fertilizer. I mean, they listed all this stuff that the grower supply stores carried and sold. And so I, I knew something was going to happen. And so in uh, 1988, a year before Operation Green Merchant, I started Growing Edge, where the articles were high tech and and um, and had information that that could be applied to cannabis, but it didn't mention it. But and a lot of the stories were about high tech vegetable growers and and uh, and so that Growing Edge took over where Sensimia Tips left off, but it didn't mention cannabis. And then I started going to uh, International Society of Horticulture Science conferences, took me to 20 countries all over the world where they had the latest research on, on uh, controlled environment, agriculture and greenhouses and hydroponics and stuff like that. And that uh, had the latest research on, on high tech methods. And so Growing Edge for 20 years just... Uh, was even more popular than Sensimia Tips. At its peak, Sensimia Tips had 21,000 circulation, but Growing Edge was 45,000 circulation. Drugs are menacing our society. They're threatening our values and undercutting our institutions. They're killing our children. We have increased seizures of illegal drugs. Shortages of marijuana are now being reported. One in 12 persons smokes marijuana regular. Drug use is even higher among the age group 18 to 25, most likely just entering the workforce. Some used to call drugs harmless recreation. They're not. Drugs are a real and terribly dangerous threat to our neighborhoods, our friends, and our families. Tonight, I'm announcing a strategy that reflects the coordinated, cooperative commitment of all our federal agencies. It just means punishment that is swift and certain. If you sell drugs, you will be caught. And when you're caught, you will be prosecuted. And once you're convicted, you will do time. Caught, prosecuted, punished. We need more prisons, more jails, more courts, more prosecutors. So tonight I'm requesting altogether an almost billion and a half dollar increase in drug-related federal spending on law enforcement. Our nation has zero tolerance for casual drug use. Operation Green Merchant was a new approach in the war on drugs. The primary focus of the raids were aimed at licensed business owners who sold indoor growing supplies such as HID lighting, watering systems, and other accessories. These raids were conducted under the premise that these products, with legitimate legal uses, were being used to grow illegal cannabis, making the shop owners just as guilty as the street dealers. On October 26, 1989, federal agents executed Operation Green Merchant with raids on hydroponic stores in 46 states. By nightfall, 119 people had been arrested, over 6,500 cannabis plants destroyed, and seven businesses were seized. Tom Alexander was one of those business owners. So when Operation Green Merchant happened, they took my store and basically did civil forfeiture and uh, 
to civil forfeiture is basically legalized stealing of property because they don't have to charge anybody with a crime. They basically confiscate the, the, uh, merchandise and to fight, to get it back, you got to put 10% bond up of the value of the property. And they took like $75,000 worth of merchandise. I would had to put up $7,500 to fight, to get it back. And I was going to, um, do a speaking tour around the country to try to raise money to fight these guys. But my wife at the time said, no, uh, give it up. And so they offered me a, a deal where if I just let them keep the stuff that they would consider it case closed. And so I took that because they never arrested me. They arrested my merchandise. And, uh, you know, if they had a case against me, they would have done it because they hated me. When I went on these TV shows and radio talk shows and stuff, I was always debating DEA guys and and uh, congressmen and and local sheriffs and stuff. And so they hated me because I gave a, a logical argument, a lot of the same arguments that are used today that now make sense. I don't know. For some reason, it didn't make sense back then, but um, they hated me. They used... Uh, the civil forfeiture of the uh, of that drug paraphernalia law, the federal drug paraphernalia law, which listed HID lights and hydroponics and fertilizers and drip irrigation, it lists all this common gardening stuff. And uh, in the statute, it allows civil forfeiture of that merchandise without ever charging anybody with a crime. And then to get it back, you have to fight them in court. And uh, the basis of the civil forfeiture is your intent. And the way they nailed us was I had a manager and an employee, both were Vietnam vets, and um, they cased the store out and somehow found that they were Vietnam vets. And in our weekly meetings, I would always tell them, look, if they mention the, the magic word of cannabis, or back then we called it marijuana, if they mention marijuana, you throw them out of the store and say, don't ever come back and don't sell them anything. And my employees, oh, yeah, they'd shake their head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, and so they cased, the DEA cased the store out, determined that my two employees were Vietnam vets. And came in uh, a month before Green Merchant and said, we're Vietnam vets, we have post-traumatic stress syndrome, and we need lights to uh, grow marijuana, cannabis. And um, my employee says, well, we can't sell you anything if you're going to do that. And they got into this dialogue about Vietnam and blah, 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 blah. So for half and the way I found all this out is my lawyer got transcripts of the wiretap of the wire that they were wearing. And um, after half an hour, the DEA goes, well, we want to grow tomatoes. We changed our mind. We want to grow tomatoes. And so he sold them the lights and hydroponics. Well, the judge who wrote the civil forfeiture warrant said they should have known, the employees should have known that the DEA agents were going to grow cannabis yet they were lying 
they weren't going to grow anything because, you know, but somehow my employees, you know, uh, were guilty of selling them equipment to grow cannabis, even though they had no intent of growing cannabis. But they used that one sale to say that the intent of my employees selling them the equipment was to grow cannabis. And so that was the basis of stealing my store and uh, destroying my business. And, uh, you know, it it's totally unfair. I, I just, it took me a while to accept the fact that I got ripped off. You know, I got ripped off by the sheriffs when they stole my crop and as evidence. And then I got ripped off by the DEA stealing my store. When I first opened my store, I found out that my phones were connected to an apartment above a bar about a half a block down the street. The way I found that out was on a Sunday, uh, I went in and I went to use my telephone and I pick it up and all I hear is music and, and, Somehow they left their phone off the hook or something up at the apartment. And uh, so on Monday, I had uh, U.S. West, my the phone carrier at the time. And the guy climbed up the pole and he tells me, yeah, your phone's connected to an apartment down the street. And so I go down the street, knock on the door, turns out to be the undercover cop of the Corvallis police. And I go, what the fuck do you have my phone? Uh, I, I go, why do you, why, uh, why is my phone? And he just slammed the door in my face. So I knew from the start that the Corvallis police were on my case. And I made sure I didn't talk about anything uh, incriminating on the phone. Somehow the DEA didn't trust the Corvallis police to let them in on the fact that they were going to do this raid. And, uh, so I was in my office and uh, uh, we didn't open until 1030 every day. And I get there at 830 and I entered the back door where they weren't there in the back. And uh, I I was up in my upstairs office and I'm starting to get calls from the East Coast because um, the raids were happening on the East Coast. And so I looked out the front and there were two, you know, forts and with guys sitting in the cars and I go, oh, they're going to get me. And so, uh, I called my lawyer and, uh, he, he came right when they came through the door at 1030, when I unlocked it and, uh, they basically, uh, uh, made him, uh, open his briefcase. He has a gun in the briefcase and they said, let me see your concealed permit. And he didn't have one. And they said, we could bust you right now. And they didn't. They let him just stand, watch them take all the merchandise into this big U-Haul. But what was amazing is they alerted the TV stations, but they didn't alert the local police. And that pissed off the Corvallis police because that when they ran across the street, they pushed an old lady down. And meanwhile, the cameras were rolling. And, uh, and so there was a lot of... Uh, Corvallis police that were uh, pissed because they said, you know, if if we saw people running across the street with guns, even though they had jackets that said DEA, you know, it could have been a gun battle. And so they have a, a little um, dispute over that. But the DEA was afraid that if they told the Corvallis police, it might have leaked out and 
somehow I would have found out, but I don't think that would have happened. So I was in my office and, uh, and they took, uh, uh, I had a big safe and they took the money out of the safe, but they eventually gave it back. I don't know why they did that, but, um, I guess my lawyer negotiated that part of the deal, but, uh, they did keep 75,000 worth of merchandise and, and basically I had to close the store and not open another garden supply store ever again. They only charged a handful of people out of the 62 stores. They, in most cases, they arrested the merchandise and just tried to put the business out of business. And uh, I think like probably about 80% went out of business. Bloomington Wholesale in uh, a worm's way and Bloomington Wholesale in the Midwest had some problems, but those were the only distributors that really, and both of them had retail stores, so that's how their connection. But the distributors that had no connect, no retail stores themselves weren't uh, weren't affected, other than having some of their customers go out of business, because the way they did it in every store was. They went in and did purchases, and so they used the purchases as the intent of selling the products. And so big distributors never got hit, like Hydro Farm and Sunlight Supply and that just got bought out by miracle Grow. Um, they, they continued to advertise on Growing Edge, and the consumers still bought Growing Edge it, Basically, uh, for every store they took out, three or four opened up. I mean, it was like a, a, a whack-a-mole uh, situation where every store that they took out, several opened up in its place. So it defeated whatever purpose they were trying to accomplish. And they never really went after stores again after that. In the decades before cannabis was sold on an open and legal market, there existed a tight-knit group of local farmers who were skeptical of all outsiders and fearful of any helicopter in the sky. This truth repeated itself throughout the country, but even more so in the Emerald Triangle of California. In 1983, the campaign against marijuana planting, also known as CAMP, began in the hills of the Emerald Triangle with a focus by authorities to eradicate cannabis production. The skies of Humboldt, Trinity, and Mendocino counties were frequently filled with helicopters scanning the hillsides for telltale signs of illegal gardens using heat sensing equipment to spot generators and other production equipment. Grow shops in the area were staked out and customers were followed upon leaving. The feds were hoping the customers would lead them to a clandestine outdoor grow. Lives were forever altered and the trust amongst citizen and authority eroded. Coincidentally, the bus drove prices even higher, which enticed more locals to try their hands at raising a cannabis crop. This cycle repeated itself, and even to this day, the same cycle of cat and mouse continues in the hills of the Emerald Triangle. It's been my pretty much my life for, uh, what, like almost 45, 50 years. It was definitely a sharing, as long as you lived in the community, if you were a stranger, it, you know, I, I remember one trip I took down to Hum, or actually Mendocino, and I was in Boonville, which is between Ukiah and the coast, 
and I was with a, a local friend of mine, and we were in a bar, and this was at the height of uh, camp or campaign against marijuana planting, which was a military action by the DEA and National Guard down in Humboldt, Mendocino, and Trinity, and the Emerald Triangle. And in the bar, these guys said to me, you're a stranger. If you don't get the hell out of here, we're going to beat the shit out of you. And my buddy's saying, hey, he's a friend of mine. They go, we don't care. And so within minutes, I got the hell out of there because, you know, it was like redneck city. And, you know, uh, it, it was a different world back then. You had to be uh, from live in the area and everybody shared. But if you were a stranger, they, uh, they, they didn't want you around. It was a, basically a war zone, you know. If you heard helicopters, you ran and hid in the trees. trees. And, you know, if you're working out in your patch, if you heard any airplane or helicopter, you, you hid in the bushes. And so it was real scary because, uh, you know, they were out there looking for you. and But you had to keep working with your plants and, you know, pruning them and fertilizing them and, and you know, tending to them. You know, they're a really high-maintenance crop. I mean, if you want to get, you can just throw the seeds and they'll grow there like a weed. But to to really get a, a high output, you have to tend to it basically all the time by pruning it and, and making it branch out. And, um, you know, look, sometimes the plant will spring a hermaphrodite branch. One branch could spring a hermaphrodite. So you got to keep looking at the plant every day to, to look make sure a branch doesn't spring hermaphrodite the colombian and the south american and the central american and mexican all had seeds and so people started um growing it from there and then also uh people started going to all different countries in asia and india and bringing back smuggling in seeds and started breeding in the late 70s early 80s especially down in Santa Cruz and Santa Barbara and, and Big Sur and Humboldt. And, and so then the breeding started taking place. And then the Netherlands in the early 80s started breeding. And that's when all these exotic crossbred varieties started coming on the scene. Well, pretty much primarily it was sativa-based uh, narrow-leaved plants from Asia and then from Colombia, you know, it was mostly equatorial varieties that um, were narrow leaf. The indica came on the scene in the late 70s to early 80s, and uh, uh, you know, the, the the more skunky indica type plants then um, became popular. And then when the growers in this country started breeding, they used a lot of the indica for the breeding. Um, purposes but now the the problem with the smell more and more sativa varieties are becoming popular because it's sweet smelling and smells like apples and blueberries and strawberries and bazooka bubblegum and i mean it's the sweet smelling varieties the neighbors don't complain about and so now uh the skunkiness is sort of becoming uh, uh undesirable because the neighbors especially for outdoor growers, the neighbors don't complain about it because uh, it, the sweet smelling are more desirable. 
you know, back in the late seventies, early eighties, if, if you had something that was eight, nine, ten percent, that was really high potency. Now plants can be up into the twenties and the highest I've ever heard was with a lab test was 31%, but I've heard that they're, the the highest level that a plant can get is around 35%. And then when they start making extracts and things, you can get it up to 80 to 90% with uh, concentrates. But, you know, the plant itself, uh, when you get up into the 20, 25%, it's really potent. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, you just use less of it. I mean, the cannabis plant is, is a lot like alcohol. You know, you can have low potency that's like beer, and then you can have all the way up to high potency concentrates that's like uh, Everclear or 200 proof alcohol. And so, you know, depending on the, the, the plant that you're growing, you want to know what its potential is. And so you want lab testing on what what the um, uh, flower that that variety grows and usually when you get seeds you get a, a readout of what the percentage potency is potentially i mean it, it it depends on the inputs that you give the plant while it's growing whether it, it uh achieves that potency of of uh of percentage of thc and then the seed bank in the netherlands in the mid 80s started shipping seeds from the Netherlands and that's that's when it really took off. A life such as Tom's was filled with fun times and fun characters as much as it was filled with adversity. Being in the public eye with the success of Sensimia Tips combined with the lack of qualified people to speak about cannabis and his willingness to engage in dialogue about the matter had landed Tom in some high profile and impressive situations where true to form he remained his mischievous stick it to the man self. Long before the cannabis world was familiar with names like Jorge Cervantes and Jeff Lowenfels, Tom had already crossed paths and built relationships with these two modern-day icons. Another cannabis icon, Robert Connell Clark, had introduced Tom to what we like to refer to as your island cultivar. If you were stuck on an island with only one cultivar to smoke for eternity, what would it be? Urban poison. Robert Connell Clark came up through Oregon back in the 80s and and gave me some uh, dried buds and seeds. And uh, it's just sweet smelling. The high is, is uplifting. It's, that's one of my favorite. And then a friend down here gave me some unidentified seeds, but it smells exactly like bazooka bubblegum. So I just call it bazooka bubblegum. And it, you want to chew it like bubblegum. It, ta- it smells and tastes when you, smoke it just like bazooka bubblegum so those two are my favorite oh man well i here's a good story i guess um when i was on donahue they put me up in the four seasons hotel in chicago and i was going to be on with charles Rangel, the congressman from new york city a dea guy a welfare mother from humboldt that got off welfare by growing and a, a author that wrote Outlaws in Babylon. So we're uh, in this fancy hotel and in all the other TV shows, 
they tell me, well, you have a hundred dollar limit on your expenses here. They didn't tell me that I had a limit. And so I went to the restaurant, this French restaurant in the basement of the hotel or the ground floor. And I looked over and I said, man, that, that woman looks like a candidate for a person to be on Donahue. So I went over and I said, are you going to be on Donahue? She said, yeah. And then I looked over here and I said, that's the other guy that's probably going to be gone. Because the reason being, everybody was in suit and ties and fancy. It was a fancy French restaurant and we were in hippie garb. And so uh, I said, look, did they put a limit on your uh, expenses? And they said, no. I said, well, let's have, I have some friends. Do you have friends? Let's call them and have a party. And so we threw a party and uh, wrote it all off on our room expenses. And uh, then the next day we were on Donahue together. Then in the mid eighties, all kinds of books started happening. Jorge Cervantes, uh, George Van Patten uh, came into my grove shop in 83 and said, I'm going to write a a cultivation book. I said, Oh, great. Well, come in when it's done. And so uh, six months later, he came in, threw it on the counter. And I said, Whoa, good job. And we went out back and burned one. And uh, we've been close friends ever since. And so, you know, he, he just went uh, full bore on, uh, you know, publishing books on it. And then a whole bunch of other people published books in the eighties and on into 90s and up to current and now there's so much information it's it's hard to uh, try and sell information because there's so much free information out there i did a couple books the best of sentimia tips um which are out of print now i probably should bring them back and update them but i'm sort of uh enjoying semi-retirement you know, I, I, uh, like I said, I do, uh, consulting once in a while and I just, uh, enjoy just gardening and hanging out. And then, you know, in 1999, I took Elaine Ingham's, uh, soil food web three day intensive course at territorial seeds. They had a, a three day intensive at their farm and that's where I really, you know, learned the scientific basis of, of organic growing by taking that three day course. No, I had met Jeff, um, 10 years before that. And he was at the time he was miracle grow, uh, proponent. And after I had gone to Elaine Ingham's, uh, course and, and in that 10 years, I always said, Jeff, you should be organic, man. It's, it's the way to go. And he would always poo-poo it. And then um, when I uh, took this course, I sent him all the stuff I got from Elaine's course and uh, the photo of of the uh, nematodes and various things that were in the soil. He like had a uh, a, a spiritual uh, awakening and became an evangelical, organic proponent from that point on. Over the past half century, Tom Alexander has seen and done a lot. He has been arrested for growing thousands of cannabis plants. He had his grow store, his livelihood stolen from him by the DEA without charges being pressed. He even saw the rise and demise of Sensimia Tips and Growing Edge, 
but it made no difference in regards to the passion Tom Alexander has for the cannabis plant. Tom consistently turned that misfortune into motivation and blessed the growing community with all of the knowledge he had acquired over the years. Through his magazines, television appearances, and subsequent work, Tom Alexander has earned an undisputed place in dope history.